All right, let's open our Bibles this morning. We're in 2 Samuel chapter 4. We're going to pick up now our study through 2 Samuel. We're dealing with the life of David in a series we call Total Incline of the Heart because David is known in Scripture as the man after God's own heart. Our text this morning, 2 Samuel chapter 4, all 12 verses. The topic we find there is this. David, uh, David excuse me, is deeply distressed when two of Ishbosheth's captains murder Ishbosheth, decapitate him, and bring his head to David. The title of our message, Off to a Bad Head Start. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your word in advance because we know, Lord, that it's through this word that you're going to reveal Jesus Christ to us this morning. Maybe to those who don't know you, maybe to those who have uh, turned from you, but certainly to those of us who do know you. Speak to us, Lord. Give us courage and strength for the days in which we live. Encourage and bless us and refresh us. Hearten us, Lord, and draw us close to you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. And those who agreed said, Amen. Every four or eight years when we elect a new president of the United States, there's a rather smooth transfer of power from one administration to the next. The outgoing gang might go so far as to remove all the W's from the computer keyboards. Uh, That's what the Clinton people did when Bush was elected. But that's about it. That's kind of uh, uh, annoying but fun. Uh, But we don't expect there to be major coups or bloodshed at the White House. In our text, a not-so-smooth change of administration was occurring in Israel. David was king over Judah in the south, while Ishbosheth, Saul's son and heir, ruled the northern tribes. The commander of the northern forces, Abner, had defected to David, offering to help him unite Israel. Abner was then murdered by David's commander, Joab. Two of Ishbosheth's commanders next murdered him and brought his head to David. Murders like these were the usual prerequisites to a change in administration in biblical times. The new king wanted to eliminate any possible heirs to the throne. And so this was a big moment in David's administration. It provided an opportunity for him to show what kind of policies he would enforce as a king. In his reaction to Abner's murder in chapter 3 and now to Ishbosheth's in chapter 4, we see that David preferred mercy over murder, a thing that was unheard of in those days. I'm going to suggest that those days continue right up to our present time, and I'll show you that the world in which we live is administrated by a murderer. It gives us opportunity to show mercy as Christians. I'll organize my thoughts around two simple points. Number one, the world in which you live is administrated by a murderer. And number two, the life which you are to live is administrated by mercy. Let's take a look at the murderer in verses 1 through 7. Now, I don't want to get too far off track talking about the devil, but the Bible tells us that he is the ruler of this world. John 12, uh, verse 31. John 14, verse 31. He's called the God of this world in 2 Corinthians 4, 4. Jesus once described him as, quote, a murderer from the beginning, John 8, 44. He was probably referring to Satan's part in the first murder. Cain is described as being of the wicked one, of Satan, in the killing of his brother. Or perhaps Jesus was referring to the fact that in tempting Adam and Eve to sin in the garden, Satan was ensuring the death of every human being who would be born from them. 
He knew that the wages of sin is what? It's death. And after Adam and Eve sinned, uh, all of their offspring would die physically. And so Satan is the world's first mass murderer, killing the human race actually in advance. Since the ruler and God of this world is a murderer, we can expect murder to be one of his key policies. Given the opportunity, we're talking actual murder, such as in Nazi Germany, as Hitler and Himmler were deeply affected by satanic influences as they carried out the Holocaust and were responsible for millions of deaths worldwide. On a more local scale, you follow the news, you saw that yesterday in Arizona, there was a, a shooting spree where a congresswoman was shot through the head. Six other individuals were killed, including a nine-year-old girl at a Safeway store as a crazed lone gunman came and began to open fire. And, and the, you know, they'll look at that and you'll see the analysis and you'll find out that this was a troubled young man and they'll give some reasons and all that. But behind it is the fact that this world is ruled by the God of this world and his philosophy is murder and anytime he can get somebody to kill somebody, anytime he can murder someone, he's all about that. Even if he can't literally kill you, the devil still administrates by murder. It's his philosophy. Look around and see how many lives his policies have destroyed. How many marriages have imploded. How much hatred and strife are sown in the world by those the Bible says are taken captive by him to do his will. Now, people aren't demon possessed in that sense. There are those who are. We believe in that. You can, a, a non-believer can be demon possessed. But the Bible says in the pastoral epistles that people who are not believers are in a sense taken captive by the devil to do his will. They don't even know. They're unwitting pawns who buy into his philosophy of death and deceit and murder and destruction. And so this is the world in which we live. You ever wonder why the world is such a terrible place? It's because it's ruled temporarily until the coming of the Lord by a murderer. Verses 1 through 8 of our text are typical slice of life from a world characterized by murder. Uh, let's take a look now in verse 1. When Saul's son, that's Ishbosheth, heard that Abner had died in Hebron, he lost heart and all Israel was troubled. Ishbosheth never ought to have been king in the first place. Everyone in Israel knew that Samuel the prophet had anointed David to rule after Saul's death. Ishbosheth allowed Abner to pressure him into succeeding his father against God's will. It was the way of the world, you see, to succeed your father as king. It's what all the kings and kingdoms did in those days, but it wasn't God's way, not for Israel. Abner and Ishbosheth, in a philosophical sense, killed what God was wanting to do. They put it to death, and thus murder would play a big part in their reign over the northern kingdom. For example, because of what they did, civil war broke out between the north and the south in Israel, and many, many multiplied hundreds, maybe even thousands of individuals had been killed in the seven years of that war. Now, the policies of murder would catch up with Ishbosheth as they had with Abner. Verse 2, now Saul's son had two men who were captains of troops. The name of one was Bana, and the name of the other was Rechab, the sons of Ramon, the uh, Berathite of the children of Benjamin. For Beroth was also part of Benjamin because the Berathites fled to Gitaim and have been sojourners there until this day. Now, skip 
verse 4, and let's look at verse 5. Then the sons of Ramon, the Barothite, Rechab and Bana set out and came about at the heat of the day to the house of Ishbosheth, who was lying on his bed at noon. And they came there all the way into the house as though to get wheat, and they stabbed him in the stomach. Then Rechab and Bana, his brother, escaped. For when they came into the house, he was lying on his bed in his bedroom. Then they struck him and killed him, beheaded him, and took his head, and were all night escaping through the plain. There's a line of dialogue in one of the Godfather movies that sums up this scene and really relates to the whole point I'm making. It goes like this. Michael Corleone, who's the Godfather, he says, If anything in this life is certain, if history has taught us anything, and then you're hanging on that. You think, wow, this is like the whole sum of history. This is everything that you need to know. And then he says, you can kill anyone. And I think, wow, how Italian. <laughs> but, you know, that pretty much sums up human history. If you look at history from a certain point of view, if, if, if it, you know, has taught us anything, if anything is certain, is that anyone can be killed. And a lot of people have been in terms of the transfer of power and people getting ahead and all that. What's with people wanting to be world-dominating dictators? What's all that about? Have you ever had that thought? Did you ever wake up and think, I want to be a Napoleon? I want to be a Hitler. I want to, be, you know, I want to take over the world. I want to be Alexander. No, I mean, it's crazy. And so history, from one point of view, uh, teaches us that you can kill anyone. Now let's look at verse 4. Jonathan, Saul's son, he had a son who was lame in his feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel and his nurse took him up and fled. And it happened as she made haste to flee that he fell and became lame. His name was Mephibosheth. Another Bible name that's right there available to you if you're thinking of boy names. And there's a lot of stuff you can do with that. Uh, you can call him Seth for short, or Bo, or Mephi, I guess. Uh, it's not going to be the most popular name of 2011, but, you know, if you're looking for a name that's out there. I suggested this to a couple recently, and they said, oh, that's lame. But uh, anyway. <laughs> I have to give credit to Zach Reese for that joke. Now, the writer inserts this history here because he's dealing with this whole idea of how kings succeeded one another by murder. Back when Saul fell on his sword and died and Israel was defeated by the Philistines, it was reasonable for the nurse to fear that they would come and murder Saul's heirs. It was the common practice. It was the cultural norm of that day. Mephibosheth's life was spared but his nurse caused him to be crippled when she dropped him in her haste. When murder is the policy, when that's the underlying philosophy, lives can be ruined in many different ways. You don't have to actually carry out the murder. There are other ways to find that people get crippled and maimed and mutilated and uh, messed up. The Rolling Stones have a song. Hopefully you're not that familiar with it. Sympathy for the Devil. It promotes the idea that Satan is, in fact, a murderer behind much of the world's suffering. You remember this line from it. I stuck around St. Petersburg when I saw it was time for a change. Killed the czar and his ministers. Anastasia screamed in vain. I rode a tank, held a general's rank when the blitzkrieg raged and the bodies stank. 
Can I get an ooh ooh? No, never mind. I'm sorry. It's not theology, but it shows a keen insight into human history. But it isn't just history in the big, broad strokes. The policies of murder permeate our everyday lives and interactions. The Bible says we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but after all, against principalities and powers, the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. At home, at work, in school, sometimes even in the church. We as Christians will be confronted with those who prefer murder on some scale. We must reply in a way that is consistent with Christ. John Wesley once said, They that are bound for heaven must be willing to swim against the stream. They must do not as most do, but as the best do. The best live by mercy. And that's what we're going to see in verses 8 through 12. The life which you are to live is administrated by mercy. David decided to swim against the stream. In verse 8, And they brought the head of Ishbosheth to David at Hebron and said to the king, Here's the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy, who sought your life. And the Lord has avenged my lord the king this day of Saul and his descendants. Recently, four bodies were thrown on a sidewalk along a service road of radiator shops and garages near the main highway leading from Mexico's capital through Cuernavaca to the south and on to Acapulco. One of the bodies was missing its head. Centuries may have passed since this episode uh, with David, but given the right circumstances, we as a race default to murder and decapitation. The truly sad thing about bringing Ishbosheth's head to David is the fact that it was normal. These guys thought David would richly reward them. He said, Look, we brought you evidence that we killed Ishbosheth, so now there's nobody to challenge you for the throne, or at least he can't challenge you. But David, verse 9, answered Rechab and Banah, his brother, the sons of Ramon and the Barathite, and said to them, As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life from all adversity, when someone told me, look, Saul is dead, thinking to have brought good news, I arrested him and had him executed in Ziklag, the one who thought I would give him a reward for his news. It's right about here that these guys start to think something might not be going their way. How much more, verse 11, when wicked men have killed a righteous person in his own house on his bed, Therefore, shall I not now require his blood at your hand and remove you from the earth? David had already established a policy of mercy over murder when he heard of Saul's death. But murder as a policy, as a philosophy, as a way of life was so ingrained that these guys didn't understand mercy. So you're these two brothers, you're commanders. And, and, and this is how, you know, the world worked. But you knew, you knew that the messenger who came and said, uh, Saul is dead and, and I helped kill him because he asked me to, uh, even though that was a lie, uh, David said, it's not good news to me that Saul is dead. Yes, he was my adversary, but, it, but you're not to touch the Lord's anointed. And everybody knew that David had that guy executed. And everybody knew it and they would have understood how unusual that is, how absolutely out of the ordinary that was. But these guys were so bent 
on the philosophy of the devil, on, on murder and mayhem, that they didn't consider that. They just immediately thought, well, we'll just, we have to kill Ishbosheth now. Now's the perfect time. He's a little bit despondent. Everybody's kind of up in the air about what's going to happen. We can sneak into the house. We'll stab him in the stomach. What, what, how are we going to prove he's dead? We'll cut his head off and, and we'll run through the plane. We'll bring his head to David and man, man, can you count up the gold? I mean, you know, I want to keep, you know, being a commander, but I'm going to retire. And, you know, and this was their mentality. Verse 12. So David commanded his young men and they executed them, cut off their hands and feet and hanged them by the pool in Hebron. They took the head of Ishbosheth and buried it in the tomb of Abner in Hebron. Now, it may sound like a contradiction to ascribe to David mercy while he's having these guys executed and their bodies mutilated. Even where mercy is the rule, justice must be carried out. These guys were actual murderers. The penalty for premeditated murder was death. And the eye for an eye thing was still in force, still part of the law of Moses that held sway. And so uh, David would have extended mercy to Ishbosheth. These guys murdered him. They, they plotted to murder him, and so they deserved death. David would not have killed Ishbosheth. We know that because in just a few chapters, he's going to seek out Mephibosheth, not to kill him, but to show him mercy. He wakes up one morning, probably after his morning devotions, and he says, Hey, are there any descendants of Saul left that I might show them kindness? And they find Mephibosheth and they bring him to the palace. And there for the rest of his life, he dines at the king's table and is taken care of. He will not give Mephibosheth what he deserved in their society. He shows him mercy. You might think, so what? He was a cripple and therefore not a challenge to the throne. Well, that's not true. Ishbosheth was installed as king by Abner who was the real power simply because he was an heir. Ishbosheth was, he wasn't even out in the battlefield when Saul and Jonathan died. He wasn't a military man. He probably never was in, other than being a son of Saul's, he was never thought of as one who would become king. But because he was a living heir, Abner, who was a pretty powerful commander, he could use him as a figurehead and run the country through him. And somebody could have done that with Mephibosheth as well. History and culture and custom, and to a certain extent, even logic dictated that David send executioners to seek and destroy Mephibosheth. It would not have been unlawful. It was expected to do anything less might even make David appear weak to those he was getting ready to rule over. And I mean, who wants a king that won't murder his rivals? This is the mentality of the day. We sometimes still fall into that some of these action movies that you watch. There's always a scene at the beginning and you think, right from the beginning, you think, this is the bad guy, he has to die. There's no way this guy can live. The hero, whoever he is, is going to kill this guy in a really brutal way. He's going to die, but not really die, and then have to be killed again. And, and then you think, yeah! Very rarely do you think, this guy needs to get saved. I mean, what would, a, what would an Arnold Schwarzenegger movie or a Bruce Willis movie be if you thought at the beginning, this guy needs to get saved? And when Bruce Willis comes to kill him, he needs to share the gospel with him and he needs to get saved. That's a real blockbuster in the making, right? 
Probably Christians wouldn't even go see a movie like that. And, and, and it gets in touch with our base nature. You know, it's like, anyway. Or you could just watch football. Uh, David had to have a lot of strength to swim upstream in this situation. But right from the beginning of his rule, he established that mercy and not murder would characterize his rule. It was David at his best. Now, David isn't always at his best. He's going to have some falls from grace as we move along. But this is David at his very best. Everybody's expecting him to kill Ishbosheth, to kill Mephibosheth, to be happy that they're dead. And instead he says, I'm not that kind of king because I don't serve that kind of God. And it just is mind-blowing in their culture. Here's some expressions you might be familiar with. You probably have used them. I know I have. Dog eat dog. It's a jungle out there. Survival of the fittest. Every man for himself. You know, a lot of times, just you know, maybe you work in an office and people say, "Well, how are things going there, man?" It's dog eat dog out there. You ever really think about that? You ever seen a dog eat another dog? I hope not. It's gross. Survival of the fittest. That's like the gladiators in the Roman amphitheater. It's like, hey, one of you is dead. Whoever lives, that's great. You'll fight another day. Every man for himself. And so we have this kind of understanding that, you know, we like to think our world is civilized. And it is to the extent that it's the rule of law. But it always breaks down. And and given the right opportunity, people kill people. Uh, You know, they, they may not start out that way. But they, they want to destroy you. They want to tear you down. And, and this, is, this is life. Some of you intellectuals have heard of Niccolo Machiavelli. If you haven't heard of him, you've been confused, like I have, if you've ever heard someone refer to something, especially in politics, as being very Machiavellian. He lived in the early 1500s. He's most famous for his book, The Prince. That book, here's a commentary on his book. It concentrates on the possibility of a new prince rather than the more traditional subject of a hereditary prince. To retain power, the hereditary prince must carefully maintain the socio-political institutions to which the people are accustomed, whereas a new prince has a more difficult task in ruling since he must first stabilize newfound power in order to build an enduring political structure. That requires the prince being concerned with reputation, but also being willing to act immorally. As a political scientist, Machiavelli emphasizes the occasional need for the methodical exercise of brute force. And so what he's saying, this philosophy of, uh, that pervades politics at some level, is that if you want to make a change for the better... You have to start by being immoral and brutal because, you know, otherwise people aren't going to go in that direction. So you have to force things on people, maybe even kill people. And then later on, you can kind of settle down and get back into a good flow. And so I'm just I'm trying in every different way from pop culture, from philosophy, from politics to show you that the world in which we live is characterized by murder. It's the devil's philosophy. Murder if you must and every time you can. David swam upstream. So can you and I. 
Now, we're going to find ourselves in one of two positions in life. Either we are the ones in charge of administrating something, or we are serving under some administration at work, at school, at home, in the church. Either way, we're called upon to show mercy whenever we're in the face of murder. In short, we're to act and react based upon the grace and mercy shown to us by the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, one of the things that means... One of the ways we do that is by not always demanding our rights. I heard a pastor say once in his sermon, Jesus didn't die for your rights, he died for your wrongs. It was his way of focusing on the fact that we who are saved were once in danger of perishing eternally. When we were yet sinners, when we were the enemies of God deserving of death and hell, Jesus came and died for our sins. He set aside his rights, as it were, and submitted to his father and came and was humiliated in order to purchase us out from death and sin and offer us eternal life. If Jesus hadn't, in a sense, given up his rights, we would still all be in our wrongs. I mean, just imagine Jesus in the situation with Pontius Pilate, where Pilate there with the power, really, of life and death over him. And Jesus, for the most part, kept silent because he was focused on going to the cross. He was giving up his rights, laying aside his right to deity in order to die for you and to die for me. And blessedly, this didn't happen. But at any moment, because earlier Jesus said, hey, I can call legions of angels to help me if I want to, but I choose not to. Jesus could have said, all right, that's it. This hand washing thing you're doing, that's lame. I'm done with this. I'm going back to heaven right now. Father, just forget this. They don't deserve it. I'm, I'm taking up my rights again. I don't want to die for the wrongs of these people. You know, it sounds blasphemous, doesn't it? But then we come along and it's like, oh, I want my rights. I demand my rights. I have rights. And sometimes we're going to have to be like Christ. We're going to have to lay down our lives in order to show mercy. I've said all of this this morning to make one very simple point. Your life exists in the context of murder. There are forces and elements that want to destroy your life. At every turn, you can join into that flow or you can go against it by showing the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. I think we sometimes can forget that biblical Christianity is lived out in the context of very small everyday situations and circumstances that give us the opportunity to reveal Jesus Christ to people. We need to get over thinking that things like love and grace and mercy and kindness and forgiveness and patience show weakness. No, they show the incredible strength of the indwelling presence of Jesus Christ. The world doesn't need another Machiavelli. It needs to see the Messiah. If you need some help or some encouragement to go against the flow, you can find it in something David said back in verse 9. He said there, as the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life from all adversity. Now, David is going to say this again towards the end of his life. So that tells me it was a kind of a philosophy that he tried to live by. His statement tells us to expect adversity as we travel the path of our lives. And it indicates that sometimes it's going to be pretty serious adversity, pretty severe, because the only way out is for the Lord to redeem you. The word redeem here means to be rescued or ransomed. People who need rescuing or ransoming are people that are in real trouble. It's not just that you had a flat tire on the way to church and it was a bummer. When you need to be rescued, when you need to be ransomed, you're in 
over your head. You're in deep trouble. And so David said, you know, I've been, I've been in some pretty tight spots. I've been in some really bad ways. But God has made me certain promises and I know that he'll keep those promises. And so in each case, when I've waited and been patient and acted like a Christian, he has ransomed me. He has redeemed me and brought me to this place. We know that all things work together for the good, for them that love the Lord and are the called according to his purposes. We know that he who began a good work in us is going to perform it and complete it until the day we go to be with Jesus. And so today, if you find yourself in a place of adversity... And you're crying out to the Lord and saying, Lord, I need to be rescued. I need to be ransomed. I'm, this is severe. Then you take up this call of David's as the Lord lives. And he does live. He's the living Savior. We don't serve a, a dead individual. We serve a living God, a living Savior. And he has redeemed our lives. And we'll go on redeeming them. The first adversity the Lord redeems us from is the wages of sin, which is death. That's the real problem. The devil got that going in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve still responsible for their own choices. But the problem in the world is sin, which brings death. And Jesus said, I can solve that. I can die in your place and offer you life. And so that's the first redemption that we experience. Jesus is the Savior of the whole world, the Bible says, especially those who believe. And so that tells me that there is a potential for anyone to be saved. Any man, woman, or child of reasonable mind that can understand the gospel, the good news, can be saved. Those that accept Christ, those that believe Jesus is their Savior, they are saved. They're born again. They pass from death to life, from darkness to light. Make sure that you've done that. Make sure that you're a Christian, that you have received Christ. If you have, if you are a Christian then he will go on redeeming your life from all of its adversity. It may be intense at times. In fact, it will be. But he's going to see you through it until he sees you face to face. And along the way, along the way, it's, just, you know, it's overly simplistic, but I think you understand now. Along the way, the, the world in which you live is a world characterized by murder. Maybe it falls short of actual murder, but it's deceit and destruction and, and all of those kinds of things. And God says, now you, you show mercy. You act like I act. And you say, Lord, I can't do that. And then he says, yeah, I know that. And that's why I can do it through you as you yield to me. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thanks for these things. They're precious, Lord, really. uh, Nuggets to just meditate upon. It's great to see David at his best to go completely against the flow of society and culture and history not just his local history, but the history of the world up to that point, which is the story of murder and destruction. And Lord, I pray that in, in small but significant ways in our experience, wherever we find ourselves, that we would be those who are the merciful and who show mercy. And that we would trust you, Lord, uh, to care for us. And if it brings us into adversity, Lord, which it will, that we would know that no matter how intense it is, you will rescue us, you will r- ransom us one way or the other. And that we will give you the glory and you will be glorified in our lives. Remember, uh, to uh, remind us, Lord, that our lives are to be about bringing you glory, revealing you to lost people so that they don't remain lost and perish in their sin. Thank you, Lord, so much for these things. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.